Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation... You are listening to the voice of Orson Welles reading Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. A page from this Sunday's edition of Anthology. On February 13, 1955, Orson Welles appeared on an episode of NBC's Anthology in Salute to Abraham Lincoln. Directed by John Malcolm Brennan, produced by Steve White, and announced by Harry Fleetwood, Anthology offered dramatic readings of famous and lesser-known plays. Its last episode aired on June 12, 1955, coinciding with the launch of NBC's Monitor. The Battle of Gettysburg, one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War, was fought bitterly from the 1st to the 3rd of July, 1863. In November of the same year, the battlefield was dedicated as a national cemetery by the president. His speech took only about two minutes to deliver. The newspapers, devoting much space to a two-hour oration by Edward Everett, belittled and buried it. But the words survived and have become a model of American speech because of their eloquence and biblical simplicity. Again from his works on Lincoln, we'll listen to Carl Sandburg reading a prelude to the Gettysburg Address. Orson Welles delivers the famous Lincoln speech, and Carl Sandburg speaks of the events following that now never-to-be-forgotten moment in American history. Here first is Carl Sandburg. cottage over the land, a tall old clock in a quiet corner told time in a tick-tock deliberation. Face and dial of the clock had known the eyes of a boy who listened to its tick-tock and learned to read its minute and hour hands. And the boy had seen years measured off by the swinging pendulum. And grown to man, sighs had gone away. And the people in the cottage knew that the clock would stand there. And the boy never again come into the room and look at the clock with the query, What is the time? In a row of graves of the unidentified, the boy would sleep long, in the dedicated final resting place at Gettysburg. Why he had gone away and why he would never come back had roots in some mystery of flags and drums. Of a national fate in which individuals sink as in a deep sea. Of men swallowed and vanished in a man-made storm of smoke and steel. The mystery deepened and moved with ancient music and inviolable consolation. Because a solemn man of authority had 
stood at the graves of the unidentified and spoken the words. We cannot consecrate. We cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. From these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. To the pendulum swing of a tall old clock in a quiet corner, they might read those words. While outside the windows, the first flurry of snow blew across the orchard and down over the meadow. The beginnings of winter in a gunmetal gloaming to be later arched with a star-flung sky. Orson Welles reads the Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate. We cannot consecrate. We cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us. But from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. And now, here again is Carl Sandburg. 
Lincoln had given his speech at Gettysburg, and the ride home to Washington took until midnight. Lincoln was tired, talked little, stretched out on one of the side seats in the drawing room and had a wet towel laid across his eyes and forehead. He had stood that day the world's foremost spokesman of popular government, saying that democracy was yet worth fighting for. He had spoken as one in mist who might head on deeper yet into mist. He incarnated the assurances and pretenses of popular government. Implied that it could and might perish from the earth. What he meant by a new birth of freedom for the nation could have a thousand interpretations. The taller riddles of the democracy stood up out of the address. It had the dream touch of vast and furious events epitomized for any foreteller to read what was to come. His cadences sang the ancient song that where there is freedom, men have fought and sacrificed for it. And that freedom is worth men's dying for. For the first time since he became president, he had on a dramatic occasion declaimed Jefferson's proposition. All men are created equal. Leaving no other inference than that he regarded the Negro slave as a man. Back at Gettysburg, the blue haze of the Cumberland Mountains had dimmed till it was a blur in a nocturne. The moon was up and fell with a bland golden benevolence on the new-made graves of soldiers, on the sepulchres of old settlers, on the horse carcasses of which the onrush of war had not yet permitted removal. The New York Herald man walked amid them and ended the story he sent his paper. The air, the trees, the graves are silent. Even the relic hunters are gone now. And uh, the soldiers here never wake to the sound of Reveille. On May 8th, 1955, at Caxton Hall in London, Orson and Paolo Mori tied the knot. Wells was simultaneously finishing the editing on a film that would be called Confidential Report in Britain and Mr. Arkadin Elsewhere. Who Arkadin really was and where all that dope came from, nobody could tell me. He had a villa near Monte Carlo and a castle in Spain, Rolls-Royce with a special musical horn, one of the biggest yachts in the world, and at least three passports. To shake him down, as Bracco had said, wasn't so easy. He was a tough baby to get to, bodyguards and all. But I found he had one weak spot, his daughter. And now I'm going to tell you about a scorpion. This scorpion wanted to cross a river. 
So he asked the frog to carry him. No, said the frog, no, thank you. If I let you on my back, you may sting me, and the sting of a scorpion is death. Now, whereas the scorpion is the logic of that, for scorpions always try to be logical. If I sting you, you will die, and I will drown. So the frog was convinced and allowed the scorpion on his back, but just in the middle of the river, he felt a terrible pain and realized that, after all, the scorpion had stung him. Logic, cried the dying frog as he started under bearing the scorpion down with him. There is no logic in this. I know, said the scorpion, but I can't help it. It's my character. Let's drink to character. He casts Paula as Reina in the film. This is a clip of Wells directing her in a scene. You know that the... Look away and take your look up. You know that the only reason we came to New York was because... Because I said I wanted to. And that was because I hoped to see Guy. A little warmer and simpler now. Look away once again. The only reason we came to New York was because... Because I said I wanted to. And that was because I hoped to see Guy. Once again with your chin higher and don't look as far to your right. The only reason we came to New York was because... Because I said I wanted to. And that was because I hoped to see Guy. Good. Now once again with the chin a little higher. The only reason we came to New York was because... Because I said I wanted to. And that was because I hoped to see Guy. Now don't pause as long between wanted to and Guy. Because I said I wanted to and that was because I wanted to see Guy. The only reason we came to New York was because... Because I said I wanted to. And that was because I... I you blink, blink, blink. Sorry. Chin higher and don't look as far to your right. The only reason we came to New York was because... Because I said I wanted to. And that was because I hoped to see Guy. Cut! In Mr. Arkadin, American smuggler Guy Van Stratton gets a tip that Russian oligarch Gregory Arkadin has a dark secret. Wanting to blackmail him, Van Stratton travels to Spain, striking up a friendship with Arkadin's daughter. The movie was shot throughout Europe in 1954, with scenes filmed in Spain, London, Munich, Paris, the French Riviera, and at the Chateau de Chillon in Switzerland. The story was based on several episodes of The Adventures of Harry Lyme and was originally released in Spain in October of 1955. Orson and Paola welcomed the birth of their daughter, Beatrice Wells, on November 13, 1955. It was Wells's third daughter. Oh, not a speech, proposing a toast. In Georgian style, Luigi. How did you recognize me? <laughs> I know you. Your glasses are friends. In Georgian toast, the little story always comes first. I had a dream. I found myself in a graveyard where all the tombstones were marked in a curious way. 1822, 1826, 1930, always like that, always a very short time between birth and death. In the graveyard, there was a very old man. I asked him how it was that he had lived so long when everyone else in his village had died so young. But no, he told me this. Not that we die early, it is just that here on our tombstones we do not count the years of a man's life, but rather the length of time he has kept a friend. Let's drink to friendship. By then, Wells was planning a return to the U.S. <laughs> 